Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. I am Davina Frederick, founder of Wealthy Woman Lawyer, which is a uh, coaching group for women law firm owners who want to scale their business to and through a million dollars. And I'm here today with Holly Draper, who is a client and friend, and she is the founder of the Draper Law Firm in McKinney, Texas. They do uh, family law. They offer family law services exclusively. And if you want to, we're going to let her introduce herself a little bit, but if you want more in-depth conversation that I've had with Holly before about our law firm, you want to go back and check out the first episode that we did together uh, a few months back. So go look for that because there's a lot of great stuff there. But today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. And so I'm excited to have you here again, Holly. Thank you. Welcome back. Sure. Thanks for having me again. Okay, great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, just tell us a little bit about the Draper firm so everybody has context for sort of your business and the scale of your business and, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. So I started my own firm, the Draper Law Firm, back in 2000, end of 2008, beginning of 2009. Um, There was a downturn in the economy, legal jobs were hard to come by. So this was the, you know, catalyst to jump in on my own. I was true solo for many years. And probably the first five years, you know, there was a lot of stress, a lot of, am I going to be able to pay the mortgage? Am I going to be able to, you know, where's the next client going to come from? But eventually, you know, things sort of took off. I now have four other attorneys working for me. We have three paralegals, two support staff. Um, We do family law exclusively. I started out as kind of general, whatever walks through the door. But over time, I grew to love family law and focused more and more onto that. And now I also do family law appeals statewide in Texas. Um, Our firm is unique because we are all virtual. We were virtual before virtual was cool. (laughs) So before COVID, we were virtual. Um, we're even more virtual now, but everyone works remote and uh, it's worked great and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Wonderful. Yeah, you have a very unique business model, which I which I absolutely love. And one of the things that you did, and, and again, we cover this more in depth in the other episode, but I just want to touch on it here so people kind of understand how it's a little bit different. One of the things that um, that you did that was different from what I see a lot of other solos do when they're growing is you started out by adding lawyers and you added lawyers, you've added several lawyers over the course of a few years. And that sort of is what catapulted your, your growth mm-hmm. and uh, got you to that high six figure revenue mark. And then we met and started mm-hmm. developing a really good marketing strategy for you. And now you're in the multi, uh, you're in multi seven figures, right? Mm-hmm. So really, really tremendous growth. So proud for you. Um, talk about that just a little bit, kind of what your thinking was behind hiring lawyers. Sure. A lot of why I wanted to grow my firm and have other people working for me was I wanted freedom. I wanted to be able, my family loves to travel. I wanted to be able to take 
lengthy international vacations and not have to come back to a big, huge pile of work and not have to worry about the fact that I was making no money during those two weeks that I went to Europe. So by hiring attorneys, I had people who could go to mediation, who could go to court, who could do everything that I could do and who could continue to run the firm and everything that was needed while I was gone. And it worked out fabulously well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And all virtual. So everybody's remote. You don't have, you have a space if you need a meeting, but most things happen uh, virtually and you, and you started that from the beginning. So that's wonderful. All right. So we've kind of touched on all of that. One thing I just want to ask you really quick though, is how many, the, at last count, you said you, your kids have been to 17 different countries. That's probably up since I got that figure. It's probably like 19 or 20 now, isn't it? <laughs> oh gosh. I don't know. We, we try and count and then we always forget. Oh, what about this place? What about this place? Um, it's definitely, it's gotta be over 20. Yeah. Really, really cool opportunity for, to be able to take your kids at such young ages for them to have this experience, these experiences already to travel and see different countries. So super exciting. Um, the, I, you and I have already discussed your law firm but I want to, so what I want to do today is I really want to talk about what happens when you get to a point where you are making, suddenly you're, you're cash rich and you're getting money coming in. And then you're starting to think to yourself, oh my gosh, I need a strategy. Like, what do I do with this money? I can't keep it in the bank account. If I keep taking it all of it, you know, personally, I need some tax strategy. I need some place to invest this. What do I do? Because I think that is what happens once people get over that million dollar mark is now we're at a new level and we're at a new level of thinking about money because up until that million dollar mark, you're focusing on paying bills, maybe getting a bigger house, maybe taking a couple of extra vacations a year. But when you start to get over that and you're making a much higher personal income as you are, what kind of thoughts went through your mind about that? So I am very much not a workaholic and I'm not the type of person that wants to work until I die. Um, I have always had an aim towards how, you know, I want to be practicing law or running my law firm by choice, not by, not because I have to, to pay the bills and whatnot. So that has led to a lot of looking for passive income streams and, you know, other investments and ways of investing so that, I'm not doing the day-to-day -day work of generating wealth and income. And I've, you know, I've done a lot of reading and listening to podcasts and all those things about how wealthy people do it and how they, you know, it's smart people or wealthy people don't work for money. They make money work for them. Right. So it was figuring out, okay, now I'm doing really well with my law firm and what do we do to make our money work for us so that we have freedom to whether that's to you know get a golden visa and live in Portugal you know there are a lot of things I want options and by investing wisely and creating passive income streams that's going to give us freedom and choices so what are some of the ideas that you considered when you started thinking about passive income streams or multiple streams of income I've always 
believed in investing in real estate. Um, that was the plan for a long time, long before we were in the position that we're in now financially. Um, we started, kind of assumed long-term rentals are, that's what people buy to invest in real estate. And you used, where we live, you used to be able to buy a house for a hundred grand and, you know, put a little money into it. And, you know, you might rent it out and make $500 a month. And, but the house would appreciate a little bit and you're getting a little bit of income and you're building wealth that way. Um, we, we ultimately ended up selling our long-term rentals and now we invest in short-term rentals because I've found that it is, there's a much higher income stream that comes from short-term rentals than long-term rentals. It's a little bit more intensive in terms of work, but if you have a good management company, and you don't do the work yourself, then it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. So I want to, yeah, there's a lot to unpack about this. I want to talk about um, your, at what point did you decide to switch from long-term to short-term rentals? Like what was the year? When did that happen? So we sold our short-term rentals probably in, or not our short-term, our long-term rentals in probably 2016, 2017, um, we sold them to put a pool in at our house at the time and then, okay, we'll accumulate money and we'll do it again. And we didn't invest again until start looking at what we were going to invest at and in again until about early 2020. So pre COVID 2020 and, um, our first short-term rental investment and our primary place we have done short-term rental investing has been in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. And we live in North Texas and a lot of people here were starting to invest there and started hearing about it. So I thought, you know, maybe this is a good idea. So we went up and it was a very different market then, looked at a bunch of properties, found a great one that was a spec under construction. And we, if I knew then what I know now, I would have pulled the trigger on several of those properties because, you know, I could probably retire now, but that was where we started our short-term rental journey. So why, why was Broken Bow appealing? You were hearing about it. What kinds of things were you hearing that made it appealing as a short-term rental market? So it was appealing because it was close enough that you could go check in on something or deal with a crisis if you had to. Uh, it was also appealing because it's a very year-round destination. So a lot of beach places, okay, you've got three or four months of summer travel and then nobody wants to go there the rest of the year. Um, and I, I didn't do a ton of research to begin with. It was more just hearing things from realtors and other investors that were local, seeing what they were doing and thinking, I'd like a piece of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it's interesting that you say that true, con true confession, right? Like I think people, people often think that uh, people who invest in other projects do research ad nauseum and especially lawyers. But I often find it's the case when I have conversations with people is they hear about something from a friend or relative or whatever, and then they, you know, they check it out and they go, oh, you know, let's try it. So I, for people listening who think, you know, I, I have to, I'm not educated enough to know enough. Sometimes your education comes through the doing, right? I mean, you learn something with your long-term rentals that way too. Yeah. And it's, I consider real estate to be relatively low risk. Um, even if the market takes a downturn, unless you're buying way at the top, um, 
real estate traditionally goes up in value and people are going to take vacations. And um, I'm also a risk taker. I'm, I'm not afraid to take a risk. And if it, you know, if it doesn't work out, then I learned my lesson, but um, yeah, you'll make another decision, right? Yeah. I'll find something else to try if it doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, you, you also, your timing though, really worked out. I mean, obviously the pandemic was a terrible thing, but it was also a really good thing for short-term, the short-term rental business, right? Did you find that to be the case? Oh, absolutely. If, because we bought when we did our first property, I mean, the market has gone through the roof. Um, we bought our first property. So when you buy short-term rental, if it's your first short-term rental in a particular market, you only need to put 10% down if you're doing a second home loan. So you're putting a relatively minimal investment down. Um, so we put it down, you know, all in between the down payment and furnishing it and all of our out-of-pocket expenses. We probably put $80,000 into this first property. In the first year, we net $80,000 in income from rentals and we sold it after 14 months and we net $265,000 on the sale. Wow. So we, you know, we had to do, we don't want to pay taxes on that gain. So then we split that into two properties in Broken Bow. Um, one that we put 10% down and one we had to put more down because you can only have the one second home at a time. But, you know, we had contracted for one of those two properties before it was even started. So it was just a slab, basically. And so that one has gone up in value significantly too. Both of them have, but the one that was new construction has probably gone up 50% in value since we bought it. Um, the market has taken a turn down from the peak, but COVID was driving the you know people to want to go somewhere that they didn't have to fly. So if everybody in North Texas was driving to Broken Bow for vacations, and then you're in a place all by yourself, away from everybody else. Uh, but that allowed a lot of people to get to know about it. And with the growth in North Texas, it's booming, northern suburbs, tons of affluent people moving in here all the time. Those are people who are going to want to get away for the weekend. Those are going to people who are going to want to, you know, not just go to Europe for the summer. They're also going to want to go spend a week up by Broken Bow Lake and take their boat. Yeah, like so that. they got a lake up there. You got trails the forest you know so there's some parks around there and stuff like that so it, it attracts people who like those outdoor activities um i have some questions about your actual deals one of the things so one of the things that you said was it's only 10 percent down with your vacation home i think most people think i've got to come up like after my first house where i got the fha loan i've got to come up with 20 percent if i want to buy another house. So talk a little bit about, about more of that, uh, that and how you found out about it and, you know, all of that. So I connected with a lender who does a lot of broken bow cabin lending. Um, I've worked with a couple and they both exclusively or not exclusively, but largely did that. And so you want a lender who knows the market, who knows what this investment is like and all of that. Um, with 10% down, it depends a lot on how expensive is the property. So we have one that's 
well over the conforming loan limits. So if you get over that, then you have to deal with a jumbo loan. There's a lot more involved with that, but you can still do 10% down and have a jumbo loan. Um, obviously, interest rates are going up. It's a lot, a lot more to consider with that. But um, so our second one, we had to, because, well, so we'll have numbers two and three, really. Number one was sold. We moved, put that into numbers two and three. You, before you get into that, Al, let me ask you, why did you sell number one? We sold because the prices were going up so dramatically. And even though our family enjoyed going to the cabin, it was really about the investment. And we started, when we saw the prices going up and up and up, and we started asking, you know, everything's for sale. Just what's the price point? And when do you know when to sell? So another cabin owner had given them the formula that they'd come up with, which was if you can net more on the sale than you can net in four years worth of income, you sell. So at the point I heard that we weren't there yet, but then when the prices kept going up, we realized, great, we're past that figure. And it, you know, if we can turn one cabin into two with really very little more out of pocket, then it's going to build our wealth. So that, and the 1031 exchange, which is deferring taxes when you're essentially climbing the property ladder um, is a really, it's designed to help people build wealth. Right. Right. So now you had two cabins there, or at this time you had two cabins there. And uh, give us an idea of kind of the property values in Broken Boat, like when you started and what they've sort of climbed to. Because I think, um, you know, it's a it's a pretty wealthy community in, in Broken Bow. Well, the cabins are expensive. I don't know that the community itself would be considered, I would say it would not be considered wealthy, but this- Because it's kind of a tourist The area. tourist piece yeah. of it is high end. Um, when we first started looking in 2020, you could get a honeymoon cabin, one bedroom, one bath for somewhere in the three to 350 range. Now you're looking 550 to 700 for a honeymoon cabin. Um, the you know cabins that would sell for seven fifty in twenty twenty are now one point five million. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big jump. It's a big jump. So, uh, where are you now? Do you have two? You have three? How many do you have there? I know you have a third property right. someplace else. Yeah, right now we have two, and then we have two more that are under construction. So, I'm hoping interest rates don't continue to go up, or we're gonna might have a problem because. You can't lock in those rates until you're getting pretty close to it being completed. And it, they were both specs, so we weren't doing construction loans or anything. We just put down a down payment and are waiting for them to be done. During that time, rates went from, you know, our, our interest rates on our last two, our two current cabins are 3%, 3.5%. And now they're going to be significantly higher for these two. Yeah. And so... You so that's going to be four in Broken Bow, and you also have a property in Galveston, correct? Yeah, when we did our 1031 exchange of our first property, I started looking, started really researching other locations because I felt like A, we don't want to need to keep all our eggs in one basket, and B, we were having a hard time finding a property in Broken Bow because the market was just so hot. So I'd started. You know, a lot of the um, like 30A in Florida or um, Smoky Mountains, they've gotten really, really cost prohibitive and the markets are already super high. So I was trying to find 
a market that was not quite so high, that would be a good investment. So being in Texas, that led us to Galveston. Uh, we'd actually almost purchased a property there as part of our 1031 exchange. And the day we were going to close, a tropical storm hit. And our contract said we didn't have to close till later that week. So we didn't close. It under There was quite a bit of damage done to the property and we panicked and we backed out of that. I, we're not, we don't want to deal with paying a $10,000 deductible on storm damage every summer. But then later we ended up deciding to get a condo because the risk seemed a lot lower with a condo um, than with a house in terms of storm damage. So right. we've got that late spring, early summer. Um, it was pretty much once it got on the market, which took longer than I would have liked, but um, it basically has been fully booked the whole time. Now the problem with the condo, which we didn't learn. To, so we kept getting outbid on things. And so we realized if we want to get a property, we're going to have to pay cash. So we took a HELOC on our primary residence to pull cash from our house and pay cash for the condo with the idea being, then we would turn around and take out a mortgage and we pay the HELOC. Well, we learned after the fact, if a building is more than a certain percentage investment properties, then you can't get a conventional mortgage on the property. Oh, so, that was that's done a little bit less than learning the hard way. So now it's if we want that cash out, eventually we'll have to sell it. But for now, we'll just keep running it out and have income coming in from that. Yeah, but and generally so we like to have mortgages on these properties, not pay cash. Because, for example, if you're buying a, a five hundred thousand dollar property and you only had to put ten percent down, and it's bringing in. $50,000 a year. Well, if you're making $50,000 a year on your $50,000 investment, that's pretty good. But yeah. if you're making $50,000 a year on your $500,000 investment, because you paid cash, that's not as good. Yeah. 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 I, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now you're, I can see where it would be easier to get a property manager to help you out with broken bow because you've, now you've got multiple properties there. And then you got this sort of loan one out in Galveston, but I assume you have some property management company that's helping you sort of manage that or some, some way that's yeah. helping you manage that. With our, with our first cabin, our plan was to self-manage and we did that for almost a year and it wasn't that hard, but it was time consuming. And I finally reached the point I realized I'm trying to outsource everything else in my life. Why am I doing this myself? Why am I the one getting a phone call at 10 o'clock at night? Cause the neighbors are noisy. Um, so we've ended up, Finding, you know, in Brokeville, we have fantastic property managers. They charge super reasonable percentage, is worth every penny. They pretty much handle it all. If there's a big crisis, they'll let us know and ask what we want to do. But I really don't have to worry about those things. They'll take care of the maintenance. They'll take care of, you know, hey, we recommend a deep clean or we recommend you power, we power wash the deck or whatever. And we say, yeah, go for it. And they'll just charge it to our account. And, um, we have a property management company in Galveston too that I'm I'm not thrilled with. <laughs> so we're going to be looking at, you know, may look to switch there, but I think we're spoiled by our fantastic one in Broken Bow. Um, some short-term rental areas, the property management fees are very high. We had looked at, you know, we'd love to have a place in a ski area and Colorado is way overpriced. You can't make money really unless you're paying cash. Um, but so we looked in New Mexico and property managers were, 35 to 40%. Like, 
we can't, wow. you can't do that. You're not going to make profit. money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, so what, give, give an idea of a good percentage for property management. So our property, our broken bow percentage is 18%. And then our, I think in Galveston, it's 23%. The Galveston company had sort of a sliding scale. If you had a more expensive property, your percentage was lower. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Cause they make more dollar wise. Yeah. Right. Um, what kinds of, what mistakes do you think you've made along the way that if you had a do over, you would do different besides I would have bought up a whole lot of property in Broken Bow. Yeah, I would, I would have started earlier. Yes, for sure. Um, you know, I, I do kind of regret selling the first cabin just because it was a fantastic cabin and we loved it and I miss it. But from an investment perspective, it was absolutely the right decision to make. Um, I would have gotten a property manager sooner. Uh, I did drop some expensive balls when I was property managing it myself. We, we had a couple issues where there were double bookings because of some mistakes that I had made with the software. And then we're trying to frantically find other cabins to put people in and paying out of pocket to put people up. And um, that was the trigger that led to hiring a management company was right. Right. I would imagine there would be a lot of work. I think that's, uh, there would be a lot of work in managing a short-term rental because you're, if people who are on vacation and people on vacation, especially if they're paying a lot of money for something, they want things to be the way they want them. And so it's a little bit more high maintenance uh, situation as opposed to a long-term renter. They're just like, whatever, we're coming and go, you know, long-term renters, uh, you know, the house is flooded and you need to come fix this or the air conditioner is breaking. But with short term, it's, you know, stuff like you said, the neighbors making noise. Well, I can't fix that or those kinds of things or they can't find something when they get there. So there's always just sort of a little nitpicky uh, phone calls that I imagine would get on your nerves so bad. Just constantly people sort of calling you to, to fuss about something that you're, you're hours away, you can't do anything about. Yeah. And there's a lot more wear and tear on a short-term rental than there is on a long-term rental. So having somebody who, I mean, even if you're self-managing from far away, you have people on the ground there because you have cleaners, you have maintenance people, you have to have the contacts, you got the security guy who's going to go over and yell at the neighbors. But um, having a property management company that's checking on the maintenance, making sure your air filters are changed out when they need to be, you know, doing all the things that have to be done more regularly than a long-term rental or your personal house, which you take really good care of. Mm -hmm. um, I've found it to be worth every penny for where I am in life. Now we know we have friends who um, aren't in the same financial position we are. And it's a stretch to buy a cabin, but they did it because it's a good investment and they need to get every penny they can out of that property. So they self-manage and it's certainly doable, especially, I mean, if you had somebody that, works part-time or a stay-at-home parent or somebody who's retired, somebody who isn't working. Right. Who isn't running a law firm on the side, you know, at the same time, yeah. then it's certainly manageable. You just have to make the right connections and get those contacts. Well, yeah. And if you turn it into, you know, I know I've, uh, there are a lot of people who turn it into their sort of full-time business and they might go a little further with sort of managing them themselves. If that's what they do, they've got multiple properties and they're managing them all. Um, but if you're looking at sort of growing wealth and it, it goes back to what you and I talk about all the time with law firms is you, you're really 
you're not really wealthy and as long as you're tied to the day-to-day of the thing. And so it's the same thing with any investment that you make. You're not really wealthy if you're tied to it day-to-day and you've got to be present because true wealth is time, time freedom and the money to enjoy with that time, you know? So um, what, what, what kind of, what do you anticipate will happen? You know, there's a lot of discussion right now about the real estate market. We already see home prices coming down for sellers. Um, In Florida, we still have really high rent and property values. I mean, everybody's getting their property assessments right now and you're seeing huge gains on your property assessment. And so there are different opinions from people saying, some people say, yeah, we're not going to, this won't ever fall like it did in 2008. And then other people are going, wait, wait, it's coming, you know, but I don't personally don't think it will ever, I don't think, uh, I think there will be a little bit of a price drop as things sort of normalize because of the pandemic and, you know, all of that. But I don't think we're going to drop back down to where people are going to lose tremendous value um, in their house to the point where, you know, they're upside down. What do you think? Well, I'm not actively trying to buy any properties right now because, you know, I do think the market is high. It has already started to come down. I think it will soften a little bit more. But because of when I bought even if the market softens, I'm never going to not be able to pay that mortgage. I'm never not going to be able to be turning a profit. My profit won't be as big as it was in 2020, but that's okay. (laughs) And um, I think it will be a good, consistent, long-term investment. Uh, I probably won't hold them, won't hold them forever because eventually, you know, people like new and flashy and you get to a point where they're going to have to renovate or something to keep up. So I like the climbing the property ladder, hold something for a few years, flip it into something else or flip it into two other properties. Um, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. They're mostly all in one basket right now. So, you know, finding other opportunities, trying connecting with, you know, like Broca Bow, I have connections with realtors that can get things before they ever hit the market from builders. And so that's how we've made a lot of money by getting things that never hit MLS. So connecting with realtors in other markets where we'd like to be, um, but trying to remember it's about the investment. It's not about a place for our family to go. And I think people get hung up on, oh, I want this house on the beach because I'm going to take my kids there and it's going to be all special and fun. If you want that, that's great. I want to travel the world and go all these different places. These properties are about investing. Right, right. I think that's a great point because I know that a lot of people will think of investing. Well, you know, I'll, I'll get something like I live in Florida. And so the natural thing for people is like, well, let's go buy, you know, a beach condo or whatever. And um, if you can get it in an area where, I mean, there are some areas that are not great, believe it or not in Florida for each vacations. And then there are others that are fantastic. Of course, right now, everything is high. And, but I think people get caught up in this idea of, I'm going to have it, we're going to go, and then we're going to lease it out when we're not using it. And I think some people can do that and make it work. But I think there are a couple of drawbacks to that. One is that you probably design it more for your taste as opposed to designing it as a vacation rental for other people. 
And for me, my viewpoint would be, well, if it's my home, like if it's my, if it's my vacation home and I've made it nice and somebody comes in and trashes it, I would have more of a problem with that than I would if it's, if it's set up for being rented out. Did you have that when you, when the cabin was sort of yours, you were renting it out? Did you have that kind of attachment? Maybe you're not like me and I have attachment to my I did have some attachment to that first cabin. That's why I'm sad still that we got rid of it. But, um, you know, we would realize, for example, spring break of uh, 2021, we went skiing in Keystone or Winter Park. And I realized we made more money renting out our cabin in Broken Bow than it cost us to go rent a big townhouse in Winter Park. So we were not ever going to use it during that time because that's how much money we were going to lose by not renting it out. So we were never going to go have spend Christmas there or Thanksgiving because those are high dollar Labor Day weekend. You know, when the rate rates are high, it's like, I, I'm not, I'm costing myself $3,000 if I'm going to go spend this time in my cabin and it's not worth 3000 you know, or I can make 3000 by letting someone else do it. Yeah. So really separating that out and the emotional attachment and saying, this is a business investment. This isn't about our vacations because you, you know, you, you love to take vacations in a lot of other places and probably rarely vacation in the same place twice because there's always so many new things to see. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas there are certain people who want to have a vacation home for their family as their family grows and they want to go there every year and make it a tradition. And they're, and that's not the same thing. Um, as buying it for investment purposes, that kind of thing. Um, are there some right now, are you just kind of in the holding pattern? Are there some, uh, you still sort of actively looking for communities where it might be good, not broken bow, but someplace else that might be good for uh, real estate investment? I'm pretty much in a holding pattern because all my cash got sunk into Galveston <laughs> and, uh, you know, once, I have these other two that when, you know, when they're completed, assuming that everything goes through for both of them, um, that's going to eat up any other cash to make those down payments. So it'll be a while till we replenish the coffers and start looking. But even if I were sitting on cash, I don't know how actively I'd be looking right now. I want, I want to, I think the market will go down a little bit more. We wait for interest rates to level out, go back down a little bit. And then I would jump back in, but Long term, the plan is going to be to essentially flip one into two, flip two into four, build up the portfolio without necessarily having to use a whole lot of other cash. Right. Because the money's already there. So you've already started. Yeah. Wonderful. What what do you, do you think the, well, first of all, let me ask you this. What do you, for getting them booked, are you using like Airbnb BRBO, are you doing other sorts of things, social media? I know you're big, you know, you're big into social media and on, on Facebook a lot, things like that. Where do you think your rentals, your market is coming from? So with our first one, when we self-managed, I had a, um, and we had it on BRBO, we had it on Airbnb and we had a, our own booking, direct booking site. And I got a lot of business because I would share about it on Facebook and it had a Facebook page and all of that. Um, I got a ton through BRBO. I got almost nothing through Airbnb, but I have heard from other people who had the opposite experience, especially. Yeah, I read recently somebody had the absolute opposite experience. So yeah. 
And then now with management companies, the management companies have their own um, booking sites, but they also push it out to VRBO and Airbnb. And I still have Facebook. I'm not very active about marketing them now, although periodically, but especially with our broken bow cabins, they're pretty much booked up. If I notice a weekend isn't booked or, you know, holidays not booked and I feel like it should be, then I might share in, you know, the local Facebook business groups or whatever. Hey, you want to go to Broken Bow for Thanksgiving? Our cabin's still available. Um, things yeah. like that. What advice would you have for somebody who wants to start getting into this short-term rentals? So there's tons of podcasts, there's and books and ways of getting educated on it. You know, you certainly want at least a minimal amount of education. I feel like I'm pretty savvy on money and investing and all that. So I didn't need to dive in as deep as somebody who is not so sophisticated, but, um, you know, talk to other people in your area, see where they're investing. Is there a, you know, like in Georgia, people want people to invest in the Blue Ridge mountains or in North Carolina. I know there's lots of people who invest in the mountains over there. Um, there are little broken bows all over the country that are probably close to wherever anybody's living and finding what makes sense based on where you are and where you can get connections. There's Facebook, there's Airbnb and short-term rental Facebook groups that are generic that have thousands of people in them where people share ideas and get advice. There's Facebook groups that are specific to, I mean, I'm probably in five different broken bow cabin owners groups and two different Galveston property owners groups. Um, so you always can find out ideas, find out about properties, find cleaners, find lenders, find realtors, all the things that you need. Connections. I mean, I think that's really the key is like you said, ex ex expanding connections so that you can learn things that you might not learn from a book because a book can tell you can, I mean, I think it's important that people read books. I'm a big book reader and listen to podcasts um, and podcasts often will lead me to connections with people. So the idea of Facebook groups, that's a wonderful thing that can come out of that um, is just connecting with resources because you might not even know what questions to ask. And then you're in a group one day and somebody asks a question and you're like, Oh man, I needed to know that. That was so great. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so really spending a little bit of time uh, probably doing that without just jumping right into something and kind of figuring it out on the way down. Um, because even though you said that you, you did that, you were having conversations with people before then trying to figure out where can I invest in this. And there are um, services out there and some of it's, you can get a certain amount for free, like airdna.com. Um, there's, I think it's mashvisor.com is another one where you can find out information about short-term rental markets in different places. And what, you know, what does it look like in Broken Bow? What does it look like in Destin, Florida? Wherever you're looking at, you can see these are, what properties are going for. It'll show you average daily, nightly rates, um, how many there are. So, you know, is it oversaturated? Is it, is there nobody here? Maybe there's a reason. Is there a ban? Um, I know in Daytona is Daytona beach is their government over there, man. They want, they got rid of spring break. They don't want them. They barely want the bikers. And now they've got a ban on short-term rentals. And and, and there are whole hotels on the beach that are just boarded up from hurricane damage. And, but they don't, they ban short-term rentals because they don't want the community, the, the floor, you know, the native Floridian nature of the community to change. And they're wanting enough housing for people there. And I know there are some 
you know, I was reading something recently in um, Arizona where they're like in Sedona. Sedona is paying Airbnb hosts like $10,000 to rent to local residents for long term and trying to incentivize people because it is there are so many people are invested in Airbnbs over the pandemic. And, you know, whole communities are like, well, how do we service this when we can't we don't have affordable housing? For the people who live and work here, right? So, all, so you definitely need to check. I mean, I if I bought something a condo in Daytona, which is just a little, you know, half an hour, forty five minutes from my house, I would really be screwed when the ban came through because then, you know, okay, well that didn't work out. So yeah, there's um, and you can usually tell a lot of places in Colorado um, have restrictions on short term rentals. Hawaii does. And you can usually tell if you're looking, I'm constantly at realtor.com when I'm bored looking at different places and like, oh man, this looks like a fantastic deal. I guarantee you it's not short-term rental eligible because if it were, it wouldn't be that cheap. Right. Somebody would already snap that up. Right. Probably. Right. Um, secrets to sort of, uh, you know, I, I love decorating and that kind of thing. And I know you decorated your first one and then you hired people to uh, interior designers to help you do the others. Are there any sort of tips on kind of like uh, what you want to have or not have in short-term rentals? I've certainly stayed in some that are really great, really cool. And then others that are like, what the heck, man? <laughs> this, is not, this is not at all like what the picture looked like. Uh, what about that? Yeah, I know there's a lot of lists circulating around, at least in the cabin owners groups, about like these are the basics that you should have. You should have X number of plates per person, and you know this many bowls, and all these things. Um, you know, we always like to include board games and you know activities for families to do, and because you're going to a cabin in the woods, you want some family bonding usually. Um, you know, at beach with beach house, you want all the beach toys and the boogie boards and things like that that people can use, even though they're, and they're generally cheap. And, but if they end up missing, so be it. Cause you know, that boogie yeah. board costs $5. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in broken bow, like um, having play sets at the added or some sort of unique features like arcade games inside pool tables, our big cabin has a shuffleboard inside. Um, having an amazing views. You can't add that if it doesn't exist, but those are things that- Think about that when you're buying a place, location, location still matters. You gotta have, you know- Absolutely. Yeah. I, and the way I heard someone put it is that you're, you, you're really selling an experience. And that's what, why so many people book, you know, these from Airbnb, VRBO is because they're looking for an experience they can't get at a hotel. And so creating that experience by having games, having, you know, fun things and stuff they could use. I, you know, uh, we rented a mountain cabin last year and we got there and one of the fireplaces was not a working fireplace at all. And the other one was like a down in this really dark, creepy basement <laughs> that you didn't want to spend any time in. And uh, so having that, having your pictures match your experience, I think probably comes into a lot too, because you get some, you know, we did not leave a good review. There were many other little things too, that made it, you know, kind of creepy. Do you worry about security or, you know, people walking off with your stuff or destroying your property or anything like that? Does that happen? I mean, does it happen much? 
We haven't really had any problems. Um, when we were self-managing, we had, uh, there was a guy in Broken Bow who I think he used to work for uh, the police department or sheriff or someone, and he does security and he monitors, everybody get, puts up cameras at their cabins and he monitors them. And you leave a note for your guests. If you have any problems, you call this guy and he'll take care of it. Um, periodically in the cabin owners groups, we'll see people will share a screenshot of somebody that was snooping around a cabin or somebody who was driving off with the outdoor TV in the bed of their truck or whatever, but we haven't had any issues like that. And fingers crossed. We stayed in one cabin where they had a, they had a hot tub and we're thinking, Oh great. A hot tub they had a video camera up facing the hot tub. I was like, and so they were, you know, understandably what they, they probably had experience with, you know, things happening, neighbors coming, maybe getting in their auto, I don't know. Um, but, you know, there's a fine line between that. You're still trying to create that experience for your guests, but you, even if you want to have, you know, security it can get a little creepy if you've got cameras everywhere. Yeah. I've seen a lot of discussions about the do's and don'ts of putting up cameras where it's, you know, you're monitoring who's coming and going. You're not monitoring what's happening in the bedroom. You're not monitoring what's happening on the, you know, in the hot tub, on in the bathroom, all those things. It's really just, it needs to be strictly a security issue, not a spying on the guests issue. Yeah. Yeah. I bet there's a lot of, there's an opportunity for lawyers probably around the whole uh, short-term rental market in, for many, many things. <laughs> um, anything else that you can think of before we wrap up that would be important for people to know if this is something that they were wanting to explore? I mean, I think it is, I don't think, I know, it is hands down the best investment that we have ever made. And it's not even close. You know, I spent 15 years leading up to that working and investing in my 401k and um, you know, brokerage accounts. And I've made more in the last two years investing in real estate than I did in those 15 investing traditionally in the market. Wow. Wow. That's a very powerful statement. Well, we'll end it on that note then and give that, give people something to think about. If somebody wants to reach out to you, connect with you, um, how can they do that? Maybe they want to find out about the Draper firm. How can they do that? Sure. Uh, you can go to our website, which is www.draperfirm.com. And there's a option there. You can contact me through the website. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate you coming back and doing another episode with me. It was always a delight. We have many interesting conversations. So this one is another one that we've captured for other people to listen in on. So thanks so much for being here. Sure. Happy to do it. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the League in the coming year, including the exclusive million-dollar law firm framework that until now, I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, Go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash lead 
That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. League is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.